0: What if there was a place where people went to be free, to make their own environment amongst a crowded city? Well, that's just what happened on a vacant rail yard in Brooklyn before city and state officials got their hands on the space. Good morning. I'm Chris Williams, and today on Fordham Conversations, I'm talking to Daniel Campo, associate professor in the School of Architecture and Planning at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He's also the author of the new book, The Accidental Playground, out now from Empire State Editions, an imprint of Fordham University Press. It's about what happened when Brooklyn residents gathered at the Brooklyn Waterfront, which was then an unofficial do-it-yourself park. Campbell used to work in the Department of City Planning in the late 1990s. He began researching the Brooklyn Waterfront in 2000 and tells us what he found. This piece of land we're talking about, uh, you write about it as the Brooklyn Eastern District Terminal, that's and that's correct. what it used to go
1: by, correct? Or is that what it's still called? No, n- nobody really uses that okay. name. Uh, that's It was the waterfront to a lot of people. Uh, the Brooklyn Eastern District Terminal was a rail to barge marine transfer facility where uh, barges would be floated across the, the New York Harbor from New Jersey and they'd have a whole bunch of freight cars on them and the they'd get to Brooklyn and they'd be pulled up by locomotives and the goods would be unloaded and stored in warehouses and eventually trucked off somewhere. A lot of, in the last few decades, it closed in 1983. In the last few decades, much of the cargo coming in was flour. So this is where most of the flour consumed uh, through bakeries and macaroni factories would, it was, it came into this spot for for much of the New York region. Um, other things came in on these barges, too. Newsprint, scrap metal went in it went out. Uh, wood, different building products. Uh, spices actually came in off of this, this particular uh, facility as well. Um, and in 1983, it closed. And you know, Williamsburg, North Brooklyn, was, was a different place then than it is today. And we can talk about that. But over time, this was a neighborhood that didn't have a lot of parks, and it was surrounded by water on three sides, but there, were no, there was only one little waterfront park. So people in the neighborhood used to come out to this site to use it as a park, to see the, the skyline, to feel the breezes, to feed ducks and geese, to do all kinds of things that you would do at a park. And as the years went on, more people did this uh, because the neighborhood was getting safer, there was more young people in the neighborhood, there was a changing dynamic, and people felt like they could go to the waterfront. Wa- you know, the waterfront was an imposing place. Traditionally, we thought of the waterfront as not a place for expensive condos, but a, a place where there was sailors and longshoremen and dirty deeds and, and so on. It's a kind of a legendary place. Um, but. Those narratives started to fade, starting in the 90s, and by the time I started doing this research, uh, I was aware of this place throughout the 90s, but I didn't start this research until about 2000. So I'm sort of catching this place at its at its last moment, probably its peak in terms of the amount of people who are using it in this way. Um, but I, I caught sort of the last end, and the things that happened over those years changed as well. But this was a, a place that people came out and sort of make your own environment. That's a phrase I use a few times in the book. It's, you know, this is a place where you could make your own environment. The, the park wasn't designed for you. You designed it when you got there.
0: You refer to it as in the book as an unpark. Yeah, the so, un-park. Yeah. So could you just talk a little bit more about probably, that and, yeah. and and some of the specific ways that people would use the space right. and, and why why they would use it.
1: Yes, it's funny that, you, that you, you seized upon the word the Unpark. It turned out that uh, of all, I, I mean, I, my research is part ethnographic, part photographic, and part observation and part sort of first person experience. So it's a combination of all those things. And I spent a lot of time out there. And I spoke to a lot of people who were down there, sometimes in formal interviews, sometimes in something much less structured. And two different people called it, you know, independently called it the Unpark. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of a, you know, it is it's like a park but it's completely different, right? First of all, you get there and it's not particularly manicured and it's not cleaned up and there's weeds and there's broken glass and there could be characters in the you know along the edges. And then second of all, there were no rules, right? You the this was a place where you could kind of do what you wanted. And that's indeed why people came down here, because they could do things that you couldn't do in a park. So, your question about what did people do, how did they design the space? Well, the most spectacular of these sort of self made design, make your own environment designs was the skate park. And this was started uh, right around 2000 by some local skateboarders who said, you know, this is a great place for skateboarding. We're, this, the neighborhood's getting more crowded. We can't really skate on the street. We're getting yelled at by people. We're getting too close to the neighbors, shiny SUVs. Let's let's go to that concrete slab by the water. And they spent a, like a weekend sweeping off glass and pulling weeds out. And, and then they threw a couple of ramps down, just homemade ramps. And it you know, it was a sloping, it was very interesting sloping concrete, which you don't see a sloping concrete foundation very often. And it was like kind of like a dynamite place, and people really enjoyed it. And this, having the this skyline in front of you was a, was an awesome thing. And so more people came down there, and then a couple of the skateboarders, who they all lived, the, at least this core group lived locally. Others came from different places. They said, you know, let's let's do something more. Let's let's build something more permanent and so they did this thing called the volcano and it's a kind of a it's a volcano with a flat top and and they did it they they collected rubble that was abundant on the waterfront chunks of concrete rocks wood and they piled it up and then they ran to home depot and they got sacks of concrete mix and then they brought it back and they mixed it with river water And they molded it by hand, and nobody really had any experience doing this, but over the course of a couple of weekends, they completed this thing. And once they completed it, it was kind of like a, you know, it it pushed this little place over the edge. And and one of the skateboarders told me, one of the young skaters, this is is a installation that you will see in no other skate park. This is the only one in the world. And, well, I, I guess I take him at his word, but sure enough, once that volcano was completed, people were coming from all over the place to skate that park, not just from the New York area, but there were professionals and the professional skateboard uh, manufacturers and apparel manufacturers based in California, and they were bringing out pros to do photo shoots and video shoots, and um, there was it was just besieged with activity. So no one kind of understood that that was going to happen, but it was incremental, it was accidental, and then they decided on another jump, right and then they built that and 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 then they decided on a third and each time they got better at what they were doing and they improved their construction techniques the the design was responsive to the other um the other particular jumps, so they built three jumps, and then the the owners of the site and new york state uh Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation came in and destroyed it all. And they didn't tell anyone, but that's what they did. So I think the skate park was perhaps the most visually spectacular of, uh, of the sort of make-your-own-environment experience, but there were lots of other things as well. You know, people just came and they occupied space, so they, they put down their chairs, they threw out a blanket. That, in a way, was sort of a make-your-own-environment light, Right. So they did that. There were events there that brought people together, and the marching band practiced there every Sunday. So that that created its own design in a way. People would come, and they would take basically a a slab, a large slab of concrete that didn't have a use, and all of a sudden it's this sort of you know Sunday afternoon festival. Uh, people did improvised uh, playground equipment. People built little clubhouses. These, these guys from the neighborhood would come, and they they have they took this. They emptied out an old um, container, old garbage container, and they stored stuff in there, and they'd barbecue, and they'd hang out, and they'd bring their coolers, and they had their little spot, right? The piers were there, and they were kind of crumbling into the water. But people found those to be interesting and places to go sit sit in the sun, to think, to reflect, to feel the breeze of the water, of the harbor, right? So it was this unbuilt condition. It it didn't have a design. It wouldn't be the kind of design that you would find in a park, any sort of park. And and people brought that design either explicitly like the skateboarders or more implicitly by occupation and use.
0: I'm Chris Williams and this is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm talking with author Daniel Campo about his new book, The Accidental Playground. You mentioned just now that once the uh, parks and recreation department got involved, that they sort of wiped out the, what they had built at the skate park. So, can you talk more about what happened once city planning got involved and, and how it changed?
1: Well, it's actually rather complicated. The um, the particular the when I started doing this research, this was a uh, six about six blocks of. Waterfront is quite large, and the southern part of these six blocks had this active waste transfer station and it smelled and there were big piles of uh, dumpsters everywhere and then the northern this was the southern two and the northern three or four blocks was sort of this undesigned condition where you could kind of do what you wanted um, New York State was interested in purchasing this uh, purchasing this site uh, to make a waterfront park and the trust for public land was involved, and they they had identified this years ago, going back to the early 90s, as a potential park site. Well, it took New York State to about 2,000 before they could buy this park, and it was a complicated transaction. They paid they paid they wanted to buy the whole thing, but they only wound up buying two two blocks because speculators had beaten them to the punch. The state was not the Office of Parks, Recreation, and Stark Preservation, which has their Regional headquarters at 125th Street in Manhattan, in a uh, glassy uh, office building. You know, they were kind of removed from the experience of this place, and this was a this was an interesting part of New York that was changing. But it was a place where uh, very vociferous, a place where there was lots of political activism, lots of sort of fighting the powers. You know, there was all these waste transfer stations. There's a whole history of things that happened on this waterfront that were not good for people's health who lived there. So there was a a whole, and and there was the whole Exxon Exxon ExxonMobil, now it's ExxonMobil, oil spill, which it wasn't actually that close to the site, but it's part of Greenpoint and Williamsburg, part of Community District 1. The state really didn't have any idea that people at the end of the day wouldn't just be satisfied, oh here's your park, you know. Um, People expected not just a good design but they expected to be engaged in a process and New York State came in there and most of their experience was upstate and much larger pieces of land and they you know they tried to collaborate but they just I don't think they were quite prepared and their idea about what would be lawful use and how the park would be managed and, well, state parks close at dusk so you, people can not come and watch the sunset, you know, this was problematic. At the same time, you know, people in this neighborhood who have been fighting to get the waterfront cleaned up, they, they were happy to have the state involved. And they did not... They understood, and I talk about these activists in the book, the group of neighborhood people in the north side of Williamsburg who formed Neighbors Against Garbage. They were were happy that somebody was coming in and going to do something positive and making sure that this was not this entire, this giant garbage dump, which was the Giuliani vision for this waterfront in the 90s. So there wasn't a sense in the planning that went into this park that you know, that this undesigned condition that I write about was something really special and needed to be preserved. So I think there there is a sense that professionals then, and I think still today, that they don't know how to understand this sort of make-your-own-environment experience, even though it seems to be something that's really interesting, provocative, and, and actually widespread. Do you argue for
0: more make your own environment types of parks, or do you argue for more of a dialogue between people who are there doing their own thing and the city, state, whoever, whoever is in charge of actually doing the planning part?
1: I, I would advocate for both. If we can just create spaces and say anything goes, you know, within some some reasonable limitations, I'd be for that as well. But I don't see that happening in New York City, especially in a place you know like New York with you know, every bit of land is really contested. Property values are really high, and um, everyone wants now. This is this sort of push since the High Line. Everyone wants this sort of showpiece park. So, I, I'm I'm thinking more about where can we establish a dialogue between contemporary practices, urban development practices, and and this interesting condition that was that's unique. This place was really unique, but this is a condition that we. Um, that's actually f- fairly common. Like we do this in cities. We have block parties. We hang out on the corner. We create social space in a place where there's traffic and pedestrians, right? There's there's hundreds of um, community gardens that are sort of part of this continuum, right? Uh, things that happen on in parking lots or vacant lots. This is part of, you know, sort of undesigned continuum. So I, I'm looking to build that dialogue between the planned and the unplanned, the designed, the undesigned, the legitimate, and things that sort of fall off the map of legitimacy.
0: You began researching the waterfront in 2000, correct? What was your intention going and in doing this research? Did you always think of it as a book, or, or what did you conceive of the research as? I,
1: when I started looking at this in 2000, um, I didn't know... What it was that exactly that I was looking at, but I found it compelling. So uh, at that time I was working. I just started a doctoral program at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, one of the people that helped me out there, I was taking a landscape architecture um, course, a seminar, and I was doing a project. And he, he this particular uh, professor, who was the director of the Van Allen at that time, was the pr- director of the Van Allen Institute for uh, public architecture for public space uh, that's on uh, 21st Street here in Manhattan uh, he had his name was Ray Gastel and he said you know I, can't, I went and I took a whole bunch of slides and I was showing it to the class and he said you know this is what you're showing is interesting you should I was thinking in my head like well what, com- what comes next what comes next with this how do we make this into a park or where, where do we look for development opportunities I was thinking a little bit conventionally he said, well, why don't you just run with this, just with what you got? And, you know, from that moment on, I was just like, yeah, there's, this is what I'm looking at as legitimate and interesting and compelling, and let me explore the, these dynamics. So after a while, I realized that, I, I thought, gee, you know, this would be a great documentary movie. But I, the thing that I realized that somewhere along the way, that probably the best, most compelling documentation this could be a book and a book that might influence how we plan and design cities. There's a lot of great photos in the book and you took all of them correct? Uh, Most of the photos right all the color photos I took and most of the black and whites. This is a very photographic book and you know early on when I had these photos and I didn't really know what I was looking at in terms of an idea but I knew it was compelling. I could show somebody the photos. I say, look, you know, look at this, look at this, look at these skateboards, look at these guys with the fire, you know, look at this art installation made out of scrap metal. And you know, other people could look at it and and, and say, yeah, this is compelling. And, you know. So the photos were sort of an entree into developing an idea of why this was legitimate. And then, you know, at first I was documenting people's activities. I was thinking really linear, so like, what are the people doing down here? And let me document it Also, they're, they're skateboarding, they're playing music, they're, I've met a guy who's swimming, right, uh, you know, um, picnics and parties and birthday parties, and old Polish families who lived in that neighborhood for decades, they were out there playing cards and drinking big bottles of Polish beer and laughing and having a grand old time. And and films and fashion shoots were down there, all these things, and I, I was trying to get pictures of everything. Somewhere along the way I, I th- said, you know, maybe it was not so much an explicit um, thought, but it was implicit that I I started to document the action a little less and more about the people as I got to know people, as I began to talk to them, understand who they were, why they were there, what they were doing there, what was their story, we might have touched on this a little bit before when we were talking about how,
0: when the when the state got involved and in all of that. Yeah. But I just want to ask what do you think of the waterfront
1: in its current incarnation? <laughs> it was very clear to me early on and actually clear to lots of people I talked that this was a kind of a temporary condition and no matter what ultimately would happen that the that this condition of people making their own environment at this space with this spread of the water, the spread of the skyline and the water, would not last forever. And in fact, it lasted perhaps longer than most thought it would. So I probably felt like, hmm, you know, I understood that it wasn't going to always be this way. And it made actually They created more of an imperative to do this documentation in a way. And then as it changed, and now we've got this little, we've got actually a a two-block portion of this experience that kind of still exists, at least in physical form. The state, New York State, decided, it's a very complicated story. I tell it in the book about this partnership that they had with New York University to build ball fields on this site to work with local residents to do this. It, it wasn't an entirely happy marriage and eventually NYU pulled out and the state, which didn't have a lot of money to build this particular park, was left with the site and no partner to pay the development costs, which was what the idea was with NYU. So they, they eventually came around to an idea like I had been talking about. like Let's just kind of leave the park as is. Let's Let's clean it up and take away the rough edges, but we'll leave those concrete slabs in place and We'll leave that sort of informal beach in place, and that's what they did. And they, the park is called East River State Park, and it's it's a really lovely, cool spot on the on the river. Um, it, it's different than most other parks in the city because it has this sort of leftover infrastructure feel that this design is still present. So I, I'm I'm actually quite pleased with that, and I I enjoy going down there. I don't go down there that often because I'm I'm not always in that part of Brooklyn, but. Um, I enjoy it, and it, there is some continuation from this experience that I document. However, you know, when you go into that park, you see this big sign or a sign that says, here's the things you can't do in this park. You can't barbecue, you can't skateboard, you can't bring your dog, you know, no loud music, no ball playing, right? There's all these restrictions, and these were all these are precisely the activities that made this place safe, that pioneered the use of the space. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. And then I'm interested in how we build cities. I'm a professor. So I have to take a little more detached view. And and in a way, that's been really healthy for me that I haven't, you know, gotten caught up. Like, look look what the city has done. Look what the state has done. This thing was cool. And now they've destroyed it, you know. So I've been realistic about it. And I think it's helped me. So there's a lot in the book that we didn't get to. Is there anything else
0: that you want to add that we didn't talk about?
1: Hmm. Oh, um, well. Um, I think one of the interesting things that comes out of this research, and you know, I, I wrote it in a way that I hope that all people, whether you're someone who studies cities or you're an architect or a planner, you'll get something out of it. But somebody who knows almost virtually nothing about these subjects will actually pick up the book and enjoy reading it or even just flipping through the the pictures Um, interesting thing about this book in a way is that what I realized when I was on the ground when I was talking to people when I was spending time with them when I'd share a beer with them watching the sunset is that everyone had a story and all these stories were, were different and unique and you know, this is kind of part of what makes New York so great, is all these different people from all these different places, all these characters, all sharing time and space. And I got to know a bunch of them, and I, their stories, their narratives, as I say, these are the Brooklyn Waterfront narratives of the undesigned and unplanned. Those narratives, I've, some of those narratives are documented in this book, and some of them in quite detail. The story of the skateboarders, the story of New York's, infamous punk rock marching band, the Hungry March Band, the story of the fire performance troops who practiced there and then would go on in the end of August and go to Burning Man in uh, Utah, in Nevada. And um, then there was Vietnam veterans and old working class guys in a neighborhood who didn't feel that comfortable. As the neighborhood was changing, they went and they created their own space where they weren't going to be hassled by cops and given a ticket for drinking beer. All of that happened anyway. And then there was these homeless guys living on the site, and I got to spend time with them. And that in itself was an interesting experience, and that could have been a book in itself. Many of them were undocumented workers. They were working on itinerant construction projects, many in South Williamsburg stuff that I was facilitating when I was working in city planning and they weren't chronic homeless. They were people who were work, you know, they were following work and they didn't have a place to live, you know, so they, this was near their construction sites and they lived communally and they had an interesting, I had interesting experiences with them and I document them. I document the story of the neighborhood activists who were sort of a little bit pulled away from the action of the site, but they did. Their story is very much a part of this book and what happened on this waterfront. And when you add up all of these stories, of course there was a bunch of artists I spent a lot of time with as well who did installations on the waterfront. Um, When you add up all these stories, what you realize is that the way that we experience space is, the way we experience places, we experience them structured in time. And everyone's story going through this place is different. So uh, I'm there for certain reasons, and you're there for another reasons. I came from this place, you came from that place. And we all feel differently about that place. The stories of the people are interesting and compelling, and there are lots of true New York stories. This is a slice of life of a, a place, a time and a place in New York that was unique, but uniquely in New, York, New York at the same time. And when you read through all these stories, I think, one of the conclusions is is that there is no perfect design. There is no way to build a park that will keep everybody happy all the time. And this place was never perfect, and it was never perfect to all people. But people made their own experience there, and lots of people did different things there. People that you wouldn't expect to mix. So there's a potential there, and I think. I hope that I can convince a few people that the experience of place is not just about looking at a satellite image. It's not just about looking at cool renderings of the new park that might be built there. That it's, it's about this experience structured in time, and it's about stories. And by spending the time to get to know people and hearing their stories in space, in time, at a p- certain place, Um, We have a much more textured view of place and the way we make decisions about place changes. Today, we're constantly looking, and maybe today is no different than than any other time in the history of this city or the history of cities. They're always looking forward to something else down the road, right? And this is indeed the basis of urban planning, right? That whatever we have today, we can do better tomorrow. we can knock something down and build it anew you know we're, we're always so concerned about what the future will be you know can we build something new can we build the next high line can we build the next brooklyn bridge park bigger better grander more expensive fancier doesn't always translate into something that's compelling or something that has none of that investment sometimes works out to be amazing right and that's, that's what's unique about this experience is that here there was no money, there was no investment, there was failed planning, um, and there were no grand plans and schemes. There were, but they kind of failed throughout the 90s and the 2000s until we, we got this this sort of in-place park and in tube that opens in 2007 and the condos that are to the south. right. So, you know, the future may be better, but the present is pretty good as well. And I try to communicate to people who, a whole range of people, but a lot of people who are in the design arts and in city planning and urban development, government too, that, you know, the future the future could be great, but the present is also an in- interesting experience, and that we shouldn't just throw away what we've got. And it's not to say that we shouldn't destroy things and make things anew. That's natural. It always happens in cities. But let, let's let's take stock in the present and let's appreciate it. These, these people who came to these places were really having, um, they were doing things that were very compelling to them and they lived in that moment. And that was what was important to them. And at the end of the day, it all got kind of wiped away, but they expected it. So appreciate the moment and live in that moment sometimes and, and it's not always about the future.
0: My thanks to Daniel Campbell for talking to me about his new book, The Accidental Playground. It's available now from Fordham University Press. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up with past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay tuned, George Bodarchy and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.